A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatians churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors in it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. My dad was an English teacher. Son of an English teacher, I love words. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold in a setting of silver. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really, really good. I love words, which is why I tend to skip over passages like 1 Corinthians 16. As we finish this series on Corinth in this last chapter, uh, it seems very prosaic, you know, prosaic, having the style or diction of prose, lacking poetic beauty, ordinary, everyday, 
commonplace, conventional, straightforward, routine, run-of-the-mill. You get the idea. It's a bunch of names and places and a few forget, don't forgets thrown in. And yet, I submit to you that if we reflect on this prosaic part of 1 Corinthians, we get an inside look at what has made the church the most powerful movement in history. The prosaic is a mosaic of what makes the church work. The first thing you notice as you read the chapter a few times is that it's full of places. In fact, there are five different nations uh, called out, Galatia, uh, uh, Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, and Judea. These are very different cultures. There's Jew and Arab. There are European and Asian. It's Greek and Rome. It's urban and rural. And it's a reminder to us that the church is an international movement. And the reason the church is an international movement is because when we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus Christ and follow him, he reissues our passport. And on the front of every Christian's passport, it now reads, citizen of heaven. And we are part of a colony of a heavenly nation that lives here on earth outside of all political and power structures, calling them to account to this one statement. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's what makes him king. That's why he has put down all enemies of humanity in this fallen world. He has conquered sin. He has conquered evil. And he has conquered death by walking out of his own grave, by his own power, punching a hole in the pitiless walls of death and saying, follow me to anyone who will follow him even through death. And that is what unites us because friends, that is power. That is power. I love the scene in uh, Oscar Wilde's play Salome, where the brusque demagogue Herod hears that Jesus of Nazareth is performing miracles and even raising the dead. And Herod blusters, well, I wish him not to do that. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. I demand that someone find him and tell him that I forbid him to raise the dead. That is the bluster of a leader who tries to carve up the world the way that he thinks or she thinks it should be carved. That is the bluster of one who thinks that there is a final human solution to the deep problems of our existence. Christians come together and proclaim the resurrection and say, King Jesus. And we are comfortable with this saying from the British missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, who was once asked, he spent his whole career, his missions career living in India. He was asked, as you look towards the future, are you a, a, a pessimist or an optimist? And Newbegin says, I am neither a pessimist or an optimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's why Christians around the world, two billion plus, on this day and most days of every week, wherever God places and plants us, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But the question is, is it working? Well, it got off to a good start, didn't it? 
in those first three centuries. Uh, it says in Galatians 4 that Jesus came and was born in the fullness of time. Well, some of that fullness of time had to do with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had state-of-the-art roads, the best roads that connected all the provinces throughout the known world. They had the Pax Romana, which is authorities to keep the peace and protect those roads. They had hostiles. They had ease of travel. They had a postal system. They also had a very important thing called a Koine Greek, a common language, which most people in the empire could at least read or understand, and that enabled the message to, to reach the farthest reaches of the empire such that by 313 AD, the Constantine, the emperor of Rome, declared Christianity the official religion. A massive, explosive growth in 300 years. Is it working? Is it still working? I love the quote from Jaroslav Pelikan, who taught at Harvard in the last century. He said that if we were to take a magnet, a giant magnet, and wave it over all of human history, and that magnet would pull up everything that had Jesus' name or influence on it, there would be very little left in terms of discussion about what's happened in history. Very little left. I love this. It seems to me whenever you flip over a rock on anything in history, Jesus is not far away. I read a great book a few weeks ago by Stephen Mansfield called The Search for God and Guinness. Arthur Guinness was a world-famous brew master in Ireland. What you may not know about Arthur Guinness is that he was actually converted one Sunday morning sitting under the ministry of the Methodist evangelist John Wesley. John Wesley preached the beauty of Jesus Christ, the necessity of receiving him as Savior and Forgiver, Lord of life. The, then the great Methodist line, Wesley would often end his sermons by saying, so go out. Your mission is to earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Well, that moment changed Arthur Guinness's life. He became a better brewmaster and made more and more money. But what he began to do with his money was he started the Sunday school movement in the country of Ireland, began financing Sunday schools in Dublin, and it spread throughout the country. And then after that was going, he decided to pour his money into the hospital, started a hospital in Dublin, and a hospital movement swept through Ireland and into Europe, all financed by Guinness money. And then Guinness transferred his values to his children. What he would do when they wanted to get married, you know, he walked in the upper echelon of society there in Dublin. He would have his friends give wedding gifts of sterling silver to his children. And then his children would marry and they would live in the poorest parts of the slums of Dublin and slowly give away that money over their lifetime. Cheers to Guinness. You have the fingerprints of Jesus still on the bottle. I'm sure the, the values have changed there. But every time you flip over a rock, Jesus is not far away. It's even happening today. I had a bagel last week with one of our retired missionaries, Glenn Kendall. Glenn used to be the vice president for World Venture, a mission-sending organization. He was responsible for the continent of Africa, lived most of his life in Africa. Now he's retired. We support his son, Nathan Kendall, and they're in Guinea, West Africa. And so Glenn and his wife, Kathy, still live nine months of the year in Africa down with their son. But Glenn told me, he says, what I love about retirement is that now I'm not responsible for every missionary in Africa. I don't miss the responsibility, but now I get to do what I really love. And what Glenn does is goes out into the courtyards and cafes and the, the university in Kankan, there in, in Guinea, and he opens his Bible. Guinea is a Muslim country, 
And anyone who walks by and even looks in his directions, he'll, he'll call out to them, do you want to read the Bible with me? Do you want to read the Gospel of Mark with me? Last year, five people came to Christ through Glenn's inviting them to read the Bible with them, four of which were Muslim. Now it gets better. Stay with me. One of those Muslims is named Billy. Billy has decided a few months ago that he wants to be a preacher of the gospel in Guinea. And today, our own senior pastor, Nick Lillo, and our small groups pastor, Jesse Raymer, are down doing a preaching conference in Guinea, and Billy is sitting under our pastor's ministry in Guinea this morning to become a preacher of the gospel. It's on the move. It's on the move. The church is an international movement. King Jesus, his power transcends all ethnic nationalities. And we proclaim Jesus as king as a citizen of heaven. But what fuels the movement? What fuels it? Well, that's where we get into the, the nuts and bolts of the chapter a little bit in 1 Corinthians 16. As we see, the first thing that fuels this international movement called the church is generosity. Paul talks about this offering. I'll read the first two verses. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then he goes on to talk about the delivery of this offering. This offering was a feature of Paul's third missionary journey. It was taken to give to the Jerusalem Christians who were really struggling. They were struggling for two reasons. One, there was a famine, a severe famine around 60 AD in Jerusalem. It's actually prophesied in Acts 11 by a Jewish prophet named Agabus. And sure enough, they were hurting. So it was to be famine relief. But many Jewish Christians uh, were also struggling because when you became a Christian in that Jewish world, you were shunned by your family and would have limited access to resources. So on Paul's third missionary journey around the northern rim of the Mediterranean, all the Gentile churches would contribute to this offering and it would be taken to Jerusalem to buy food for the churches in the city of Jerusalem. I think there are two really important things. First, the poor were on the radar. This alleviated poverty and hunger and suffering. But even more, what an amazing display of unity in the early church. Gentile churches supporting the Jewish Christians and the church in Jerusalem. A powerful, eye-catching statement to the early church and the world around them. But I think we can learn three things about our own generosity from this offering. I like the way Paul describes it, and I think we can learn from it. First, he says, on the first day of every week, scholars believe this is worthy part of liturgy that we still practice today of taking an offering when we gather on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. But you remember that Sunday became the worship day in the early church because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And so every time we gather, we take an offering. And what happens? Our money gets exposed to resurrection. Our money gets exposed to resurrection. What we do every time we give in an offering online here at church, what we do is we're saying we're submitting our money to this idea that this world is not our true home. Our true home is much ahead of us. We have it now. It's coming soon. You're not getting older. You're getting closer. 
but we will live in a place forever in the presence of God. That is our true home. And every time we take an offering here, we are reminded of that. We are reminded that the resurrection must impact our generosity because that's our true home and we give like it. So let me illustrate. So let's say you were go down to uh, Guinea with Jesse and Nick. And when you do a short-term mission here at Waterstone, we always recommend that you convert $500 of American dollars into the country currency, which in this case would be guinea francs. So Nick and Jesse, and if you were to go with them, you would take 500 guinea francs down with you. Why? Well, you might need a hotel, you'll need some meals, unforeseen expenses, but you take 500 guinea francs with you, $500 worth. So Let's say you walk out of that planning meeting, you walk up to someone in the hub and they say, you're, you're only taking $500? Now you're gonna be there a while. If it were me, just to be sure you have enough, I would empty my savings account and take everything I have. What would your answer be? <laughs> really? Now look, it's fairly certain I'm going to be in Guinea for two weeks and in America for 70 years or 80 if you're strong. Now, why would I take all my money if I'm going to be only two weeks in Guinea and 70 years in America? The same logic applies to us every time we give. The logic is this. If we're only here 70 years in America, but 70 billion trillion gajillion years in eternity, why would we pile up a stack of currency here that's of no use there? Every time we're generous, we reveal where our true home is. What's in your wallet? Has the resurrection gotten into your wallet? Paul goes on. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you, I love Paul's straightforward approach to giving. No gimmicks. None of this stuff that's gotten hold of certain veins of Christianity about, well, if you just plant a seed for $1,000, you'll get a warm spot that'll move up your back and straighten your spine and your grandma won't die and you won't have an accident on the way home. No manipulation here. No manipulation. Each one of you should. Look, Paul's point. The suffering sisters and brothers around the world are our family. We help family give. It's that simple. Giving is an issue of obedience. What's in your wallet? Obedience. And then he goes on. You should set aside, each one of you, a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It literally reads there in the original language, set aside of money according to how you prosper. Now, in the ancient world, they did not know what we know, a steady weekly or monthly paycheck. They had good weeks and good months, and they had thin weeks and thin months. But they would always be paying attention to what they were earning, and when they prospered, they would give. I think the point of transition into our culture, we who do usually have steady paychecks, is this. We, too, must pay attention to our income and our giving. In other words, I submit to you that as it was for Corinth, it should be for Waterstone. Giving is a spiritual discipline. 
a spiritual discipline. Jesus, as you know, talked about money as much as he talked about anything else. He told 38 parables, 17 of which have to do with money and possessions. Why so much emphasis? Because Jesus said it himself, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our giving is a window into our soul and our idol factory, our heart. If Jesus were to sit down with you and evaluate you on your year spiritually, I'm convinced that one of the first questions he would ask you is say, well, can you just slide me your checkbook across the table? Let's really take a look, see what's going on in your heart here. Giving is a spiritual discipline. And so we wrestle with it. And that's what I really am after this morning as we think about, you know, what's in your wallet, resurrection, obedience, and I, I want to say discipline. I want to say wrestling. Wrestling should be your wallet. I mean, you, you and I know we live in a, in a wealthy culture. We have hit the historical jackpot as to where we live and how we live. We are blessed like none other. And so money for us will be a constant spiritual discipline. And I want to say when you're wrestling hard with it, you're right where Jesus wants you. I don't think it gets easier. I think the more mature you get in Christ, the harder it gets as you wrestle with what you have. So I think we wrestle with it in two primary ways. At least I do. Speak for myself, but I think most Christians wrestle this way. We are committed to spending less every year. We're asking ourselves hard questions. Uh, How much house do I need? How much car do I need? How much clothes do I need? How much... Tools do I need? Could I share my snowblower with my neighbors? Ah, I mean, how much do we need? We're always wrestling with those questions. We're wrestling with, you know, how much ceremony should I have in my life? Like, I, I get, I, I'd prefer to do a funeral than a wedding any day of the week. Do you know why? I get so discouraged with how much our young Christians are spending on weddings. dropping it down. That's a house payment. I mean, and and really, um, I've been married 30 years. I remember two minutes of my wedding ceremony. Sorry, Jan. Really? How much are we going to spend in our funerals? When we're going to live there a lot longer than we lived here. Here, Christians are paying attention to these things and wrestling with these things. How about like Christmas? I know I'm really stepping on toes. I'm on thin ice here, but let's do one more. How about Christmas? You know, here's one thing to think about. Do your adult siblings really need anything from you? (laughs) Really, in terms of money or material? I mean, what if you went on the Compassion website and bought your sister, like I do, a, a rooster? You know, these World Vision, Compassion, we're a Compassion Church. I mean, buy your siblings a rooster to show them how much you love them. I've actually been with my Compassion kid down in Uganda a couple years ago. When on the Compassion website, you you support the $38 a month for each kid. And then you also can do $100 a year for food. I've actually got to deliver that $100 of food to my compassion kid a few years ago. Six huge bags of rice and three roosters. It was awesome. 
They lived off that for months. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. My point, Christians are always wrestling to spend less in order to give God more. And every Christian should have a portfolio that goes something like this. You should give some to the church because that's where you get fed and you grow. And actually, since the beginning in Acts 2, the people brought the proceeds from land sales and other giving and laid it at the feet of the apostles for the church. You always, we always support the church. You should also have the poor in your portfolio, a place at your table for the poor. And then lastly, you should support the mission of the gospel to go around the world, supporting missions or missionaries. Those three things you should all, we should all be gladly supporting as part of our giving portfolio. You ask, well, Larry, I mean, you're, what about the tithe? You know, I just heard, you know, 10%. I've always heard kind of that figure. Well, briefly, the tithe thing is this. It was an Old Testament standard. It's not repeated anywhere in the New Testament. I think the tithe may be a good starting point, but quite frankly, Jesus, no one ever mentions the tithe because I think he changed the tithe to a tree. Here's how it works now. When we realize what Jesus did on that cross, all that he gave, all that the father gave to us in giving us his son, we look at 10% and say, is that all? We can do much better than that. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. See, the tithe is now a test to see if the gospel is working in our heart and if the cross is sinking deeper. And so we give, we give. Jesus uh, called out a giver in Luke 21, an old widow who put her last two pennies into the offering. And he pointed to her and said, that's what I'm after. Jesus is not interested in the size of your gift. He's interested in the sacrifice of your gift. So we wrestle, we open our wallets and there's resurrection, there's obedience and there's wrestling and discipline, but that is exactly what fuels the church and makes it an international movement. The second thing that happens and fuels it is that it's a, a hospitality. You read through 1 Corinthians 16, and there's all these names, Paul and Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And all of them are lay people and ministers moving around the, 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 the northern Italian circle, the Mediterranean circle. And um, Paul's implicit request to all of them is provide hospitality, meet their needs, make sure they're refreshed. Hospitality was a driving factor of the growth of the early church. Rodney Stark, in his classic work, he's a professor at the University of Washington, it's called The Rise of Christianity, his book. He has a chapter in there called Epidemics. And what he concluded was that in the first three centuries of the church, there were two pandemic plagues that hit much of Rome. A third of the Roman Empire was wiped out by these plagues. And when they hit a city, what would happen is the pagan priests and the elites and wealthy and the... the um, uh, medical professionals would flee the city to save their lives. But guess who stayed? The church stayed. And they kept their social networks together. And they gave their homes and dwellings to become hospitals. And they cared for the sick, some of them at the expense of their life. But Stark says, that's credible love. And that's what fueled the growth of the church. That kind of sacrificial hospitality. 
It's interesting that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, the household of Stephanus was the first convert in Achaia, the word convert there is literally first fruits. And the point is that just as Jesus' resurrection is first fruit to us, that what happened to him walking out of his grave will happen to us walking out of our grave. The point being that Stephanus, what happened to him will happen to others in Achaeus. The point being what happened to you and you coming to Christ, God's going to use you as a first fruit to bring others to himself. And one of the ways he does that is by taking over your house in hospitality. So let me illustrate. I see this all over Waterstone. I get so excited about this. This is God saves you to save others, and we see that happening in hospitality around the church. I know of a family here at Waterstone that for over 15 years, every year, has strived to attempted, had, I don't know the right word, to have two international students from Muslim countries live with them while they go to college here in the Denver area. They have touched scores of Muslim lives just by opening their bedrooms up and saying, you can stay with us while you go to school. Plus they make some money. I know of couples here in the church who uh, are empty nesters and they remodeled their basement and now they lend their basement out to uh, missionaries who are passing through, providing the kind of hospitality we see in 1 Corinthians 16. Anyone who's passing through town on a year off, a year home, they can stay in this house. I see you, many of you, a lot of you, opening up your living rooms to God. God has saved your living rooms. And what you do is when we have these sermon, like this fall, we're gonna preach through Revelation, fall and spring. We're gonna have massive small groups, like 60 small groups. We need your living room. Would you give us your living room to help equip people for ministry? Uh, there are, we've been, we've been like bugging you relentlessly all summer. Have you had your neighbors over to your kitchen yet and cooked them a meal? Have you? Please, you have August left. Have your neighbors into your home, cook them a meal. God has saved your kitchen to do that. We have a couple in our church who uh, has lended out a room to uh, one of the spouses of a married couple that was going through a very hard time. And as part of a strategy to work on their marriage, they separated. And this couple took in one of the spouses so that they could have a positive separation. I'm just saying there are a hundred ways that God can use your kitchen, your dining room, your living room, your bedroom, and your basement. It depends on the season of life you're in. Obviously, there'll be times in life when this is more readily able for you, but I'm asking you, have you considered how God wants to use your house in hospitality? So you're thinking, man, Larry, you're dumping a lot on us today. Well, you know, Paul's dumping a lot on us. Uh, but, but how do we do that? Well, it gets to the idea of love. In other words, the formula here is generosity plus hospitality equals love. And the world sees that we love them. Love. And that's why I think in verses 13 and 14, Paul gets into this pep talk mode when he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Five strong Greek verbs there. One commentator said that it's like Paul is huddling the team up and before they take the field, he gives them the coach talk. When I thought of that, I thought of my experience in high school football. I don't mean to brag, but I'm going to. I made special teams as a freshman in high school on our football team. Coaltown, Pennsylvania, 30 people tried out for the team. We all made it, but anyhow, you <laughs> 
<laughs> you should be impressed. I made the special teams. Now, I was a quick learner. Here's what happened. Coach Myerski said that he's going to line us up and you kick off and you know the fastest guys on the team are on the outside. And you may have noticed this even when the, when the Broncos do. I mean, the fastest guys are on the outside and they run their lanes and their job is to push everything to the middle so everything can get messed up and clogged up in the middle and the guy can get tackled. I wasn't quite that fast to be an outside burner. I was in the middle. And what I was supposed to do was run as fast as I could and run into this thing down the field called a wall where the biggest players from the other team, I guess this is illegal now, you can't do it anymore, but back in the 70s, they could actually hold hands. And it was like, Red Rover, Red Rover. And you would get killed. In fact, the first time I ran down there and I saw this happening, I ran around it. I completely missed the play. I ran over to the sideline and Coach Myerski, again, this was 30, 40 years ago, he grabbed my face mask. And I don't know, whenever he talked to us individually, he still always said, boys, boys, boys. And there was a big thing, a skull on his lip, and you were always afraid he was going to fly out of you. Boys, don't be a cupcake. That is Paul's word for you this morning. Be strong. Take initiative. Be courageous. We are called to be an international movement of not cupcakes who on special teams lays down our lives in generosity and hospitality. See, Larry, yeah, where does that come from? That willingness to go down and lay down your life. The place that I know where that comes from, the only place, is the same place Paul found it. One, one other thing about the text, this is interesting. You know, scholars believe that Paul had really bad eyesight and he, he had trouble seeing it. Most all his letters were actually dictated to a writer, which is just amazing to think about how brilliant Paul was. And this is the case in Corinthians. And then, but verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And in one other letter, he says, see how big the letters are. Paul wants to write his own personal greeting. And he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. It's there Paul is taking the prose and making it poetry. That's a line of poetry there. It's, it's like maybe some of you read the poetry of W.H. Auden. His most famous line was, love each other or perish. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. Love the Lord or you lose everything. It's only Jesus. I've had this vision of life. My life's been completely turned upside down. It's all about Jesus. And if you don't get Jesus, you get nothing in the end. All about Jesus. For Paul, picking up the quill here, we think back to where he came from when he was first in Acts 9, breathing threats and murder against the church. Jesus called to him. Jesus knew his name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus. Paul was struck blind by the glory of Jesus. He had a new vision, a changed vision for the rest of his life, a changed and new heart. He was taken in and provided hospitality. He was baptized. The first words out of his mouth after his baptism as he went into the synagogue and he said, Jesus Christ is the son of God. That meeting with Jesus who knew his name and loved him in 
that meeting changed Paul's heart and a new vision. We want this vision of being able to lay down our lives. It comes from knowing that Jesus ran into the wall for us to forgive our sins, to put us on mission in the greatest movement in the history of the world. And then when it's all said and done, says to us, come home, come home. So this morning, just before we sing our final prayer, if you're a longtime follower, or if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, here's what I want you to think about in terms of application, take with you. I want you to symbolically even write hospitality on this palm and write generosity on this palm. And this week, just let those words rest deep in your heart. Walk around before God and say, God, where do you want hospitality from me? Where do you want generosity from me? Let those words live in you this week. And then some of us here this morning, I don't know why you came this morning, but every, every time we gather, we have people who are seeking Jesus and trying to find him, seeking out this Christian thing. If you're here this morning and God has broken into your life and you want to be part of a, a movement that's the most powerful movement in the world and you want to have your sins forgiven and you want to have the promise of life after death, Jesus knows your name and he's calling you right now to come to him and just respond with a simple prayer. In fact, let's all pray together and you can pray this prayer silently in your heart and receive Jesus and walk out if you're a new person. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you are the son of God. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my sins and forgive me. I believe that you promised me now life after death. I welcome you into my heart. I will follow you the rest of my existence. Thank you for saving me. Amen. Now, could we all stand together and pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ?